Hey, the passage today is Psalm 7, Psalm chapter 7. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn there, if you have a device, if it's your first time, we use the English Standard Version. So in week four of our Attributes of God series, the first week we uh, focused on the holiness of God. Then we moved to the knowledge of God. Last week we were in Psalm 46, covering God's sovereignty. And uh, this week we're going to be covering a really a rather cheery attribute called the wrath of God. Um, and so we're going to be doing Psalm chapter 7 if you want to turn there. Man, I remember the first time I went to a Build-A-Bear workshop. Has anybody ever been to one of those things? You're just afraid to raise your hands? I thought, finally, I can get the stuffed animal I've always dreamed of. That's what I thought. I was 34 when that happened. Um, but what we do at a Build-A-Bear workshop is what many people try to do with God, okay? Is they design him the way they want him to be, right? So we have a little checklist, loving, check, right? Patient, check. Generous, du- you know, double check, right? Uh, most people don't get to the box marked wrath and go, oh yeah, don't let me forget to check that one. We, 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 it's really not how our minds work when we think of God. Most people aren't interested in a God of wrath. A God of wrath doesn't really jive with sort of the build a God workshop mentality that many modern churches end up sending their people home with week after week. In fact, uh, this might be the first time you've ever heard a message on the wrath of God or even considered the truth of it. Is this the first time? I'd love to get a show of hands. How many of you have heard a sermon on the wrath of God before? Just, just a few of you. Uh, yeah, Liz Hawley mentioned to me before the service, I've never, never heard somebody preach on the wrath of God. So only a few of you have actually heard that. I'm, I'm going to have to add 20 minutes now to, uh, to the end of the sermon to make sure that we, we get it. But here's our problem, and this is sort of the argument that we're going to start with and, and answer and take us through. The problem is, is that if God is all holy, okay, and God is all just, it means he can't be indifferent to sin, Right? So all the things that we've learned about God up to this point, about his holiness and his knowledge and his sovereignty and his justice, if that is true, he can't be indifferent to sin. Uh, a professor, theologian, Wayne Grudem, maybe some of you guys have heard of Wayne Grudem, he poses this question. He says, what would God be like if he didn't hate sin? So he poses that question. And what I want to do is I want to bring it down a little bit to our level and say, what do you think of somebody who doesn't hate sin? What do you think of someone who doesn't hate evil, who doesn't hate wickedness and cruelty and injustice and murder and violence and lying and cheating and scheming and thieving? And what do you think of somebody that tolerates those things? Well, you question whether there's any good in them, right? And you become suspicious if you see anything that comes out of them that looks good or resembles good, right? So Wayne Grudem, he goes on to define God's wrath as meaning this, that God is someone who intensely hates all sin. So we're going to take that definition and we're going to use that to sort of, sort of code everything that we talk about today as we get into Psalm 7, that God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. You know what's interesting is most of us are actually okay with God's anger against sin. There's an expectation that God is going to hate that list that I just laid out. What shocks us, what we grapple with, is when we learn he is angry at unrepentant sinners for their sin. Okay, so let me clear up something right now. We're going to be talking a lot about unrepentant sinners, um, more than we're necessarily talking about unrepentant sin. So when we talk about unrepentant sinners, what we're saying, 
We're talking about a group of people that have not submitted their life to Jesus Christ. They have not received the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ, his work on the cross for their righteousness. Now, all of us every day still sin. And right now there's sin that you have not repented to God for. Why? Well, because you don't have a photographic memory, but we use Sunday mornings as a time to remind ourselves that part of what we do in our liturgy with confession is that remind ourselves that we're sinners and that we have ongoing sin in our life that we need to be repenting of so that God can continue to cleanse us from these things and our relationship with him continues to grow closer rather than more distant. So what we're really focusing in on, just to make sure we're clear, is unrepentant sinners, people that have never come into that saving relationship of repentance with Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What David, the psalmist, is going to be focusing on this morning is those people that have not even gotten to that place. And we're going to see how this applies to us in the process. Now, some of you may be familiar with this age-old argument that says, Ronnie, a God of wrath is the God of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, somehow God morphed into a God of mercy, grace, and love because that's what we see in the character of Jesus. Now, we actually have a theological term for that argument, and it's called nope. That's what we got right there, right? Because what we see is that both the Old Testament and the New Testament, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they affirm God's holy and righteous wrath against sin. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 32. It says this. This is, this is God talking. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So God is establishing something about who he is and the power he has and his opinion of sin. He says this, he goes on to say, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Man, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just not a little lighthearted reading that you want to dive into before bed at night with the kiddos. I mean, that's, we're talking about one of the character traits and attributes of God. We get to the New Testament. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Basically, know that there's a God who know the way that they should be moving and they willingly go the other way. So the reason it's wrong to think there's an Old Testament and a New Testament version of God is because unlike us, okay, unlike the chameleon-like quality that you and I possess, God doesn't change. Meaning the holy, omniscient, sovereign, wrathful God of the Old Testament Man, he is the holy, omniscient, sovereign, wrathful God of the New Testament. God has not just become more tolerant of sin through the years in the way that we are more tolerant of sin. In fact, listen to this, for God to tolerate sin would show his intolerance of mercy, grace, and justice. And we're going to get a little more into that as we go along. Numbers chapter 23 says this, 
God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? In other words, has he spoken something that he's not done? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? So some of you might say, I got it. But again, Ronnie, that's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus I read about in the New Testament, except it is. Because Jesus is God in the flesh who embodies the same attributes and character of God. In fact, the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews confirms that when he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has that same immutability or that same changeless quality that God has. So since God is holy and since God doesn't change, it follows then that he would be fiercely opposed to all things that stand in opposition to his goodness and his righteousness. And yet, when the subject of God's wrath is presented in the Bible, what we see is that many try to explain it away like it was something God was like back when he had anger management issues. But, you know, he's worked through those now because of Jesus. So today we're going to see why God's wrath is something that's not only a perfect attribute of his holy character, but listen, it's actually something that we can praise and thank him for. Because if God's wrath is absent, it means his love is lost. It's lost. So let's dive right in. Psalm 7. It says this, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Let's stop right there. What we're going to do is we're going to divide this chapter really up into two sections. In the first part of the chapter, we're going to see what David is laying out to be the marks of the repentant or the righteous man or woman. And then we're going to see what some of the marks of an unrepentant man or woman is. So right now we get into the marks of the repentant. David says right at the beginning here, he says, God, deliver me from my pursuers who want to tear my soul apart like a lion. Right? Now, my wife tells me I tend to lean a bit on the dramatic side, right? But I have not prayed a prayer like this in like days, right? It's been days, right? But what we see from David and what we understand is we read his Psalms and we read about all the things he did in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Man, David is complex. I mean, this is a complicated, multi gifted, multi task oriented dude. I mean, on one hand, he was this extremely sensitive, you know, musician and songwriter and, and, and poet at night. But during the day, this guy just goes into beast mode during the day, right? He's this warrior king. David basically kicked off the Marvel universe, right? If we want to bring it all the way back to then, you guys are, you know, all going and watching Infinity War. But here's what's interesting about David. He often, often found himself in need of refuge, in need of saving he often was in a place of feeling isolated and alone. You never get the sense that David was surprised when everything was the worst. Because when you read David, it was like it was the worst all the time for him, right? He says, there is no one to deliver me, God. One of the marks of a repentant and righteous person is that, number one, they know who they're not. And number two, they're willing to take responsibility for their own sin. We see this here as we are diving into Psalm 7. Number one, they know who they're not. David wasn't such a beast on the battleground that he didn't think he needed God's help. Man, all through Scripture, all through the Psalms, David is on his knees pleading with God for deliverance from his enemies, right? I mean, some of you dudes won't even ask for directions 
which I guess doesn't happen anymore because we have GPS. Maybe it does still happen. I don't know. But David always had a grasp of his own humanness as well as a grasp of God's holiness, it seems, simultaneously. He was always holding those things like this in the balance. So one of the marks of a repentant person like David is that they know who they're not, they know they need help, they know they need deliverance. There's a humility there to go before the Lord and plead with him. Secondly, they're willing to take responsibility for their sin. David here is not claiming he's sinless. He's saying he's innocent of the charges his enemy is pursuing him over. Let's read verses three through five. He says, oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So David, he pauses in his prayer to be searched by God. We saw that last week, didn't we, in Psalm 46, he said, search me and know me. Try me and discern my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me into the everlasting way. Remember, David said that. He says, look, if I have in any way deserved what's coming, if my hands are dirty, right? If I've repaid my friends with evil, if I've attacked my enemy for no reason, then throw me to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Like, I've never made that statement. God, lay my glory in the dust right? I think we would call that in today's vernacular, integrity. We would call that integrity. So one of the questions that we want to ask as we're looking down at David's response to God is how does this apply to us? How does this apply to you? Are, are you an, an open book like David is here? Are you willing to admit fault? Are you willing to say, look, I, I believe I'm innocent, but I might be missing something because I know the way my heart works, God. The question we have to ask is what is most important to us? Being right or being right before the Lord? David's, David's quest here was to be right before the Lord. He makes a case for his innocence to the degree that he's willing to subject himself to God's justice if he is deserving of it. I mean, how often do we bend over backwards trying to defend our behavior in order to avoid blame when in fact we are guilty? David, on the other hand here, is willing to accept discipline from God if he is wrong because his expectation is that wrongdoing deserves and demands it. He's not under any illusion about the severity of his sin before the Lord. But instead of defending and excusing his sin, like, like we often do, like I often do, right? He takes responsibility for the possibility of it. And what this shows us is posture, posture of integrity of a repentant and a righteous person. And because of this, David can actually plead for justice. Look at verse six. He says, arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. O you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves 
the upright in heart. So David longs for justice. And he doesn't just long for it, but he pleads to God for it. He pleads to God for justice. Arise in your anger, Lord. Lift yourself up against my enemy's fury. He's saying, wake up, God. Wake up, appoint your judgment, but judge me according to my righteousness and integrity. Again, David is making a plea for justice with a heart that wants to see evil abolished. And those longings and pleas that we have, those are good things because they mirror the heart of God. So as we pray for God to establish righteousness in our own houses, in our cities, in our towns, in our neighborhoods, and in our nation, what we are doing is we are praying for God to act. David's praying for God to act. We pray for God to act. And then we trust God to act by acting according to God's character. So David was acting in accordance with God's character as he was pleading for justice, wanting the things that God wanted, which which is the abolishment of evil. And again, we do this by establishing ourselves as just and merciful people, by not repaying evil for evil, by rightly judging good and evil so that we further the righteousness of God and the flourishing of humanity. This is how we live that out practically. Repentant and righteous people, and they pray for these things. They're on their knees like David, praying for these things. They pray that evil would not spread. They pray that injustice would not be tolerated that violence would cease and that oppression of the poor and underprivileged would be brought to justice because this is what God is like. He is a God who intensely hates sin, who hates the degrading of societies, who hates the diminishing of human dignity and who hates the desensitization of our hearts towards wickedness. These are the marks of a repentant and righteous person. Those are the marks that we see here lived out on his knees before the Lord by David. But the unrepentant person has his marks too. Let's read about it, picking up in verse 11. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation or anger every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So the first mark we see here by David of unrepentant people is that they call down God's anger. So God's holy, unstained, white as snow righteousness means that he feels anger against sin every day. Every day. There's never a moment where God is tolerating sin. Now, sometimes God is long-suffering in our sin, right? Because his In his patience and in his kindness, he waits because he's trying to lead us to repentance. But there's never a moment where God's heart is growing softer to sin. It doesn't happen. It wouldn't be a God that we can trust if he did. Unrepentant sin, gosh, man, it calls down God's judgment. That's what he's saying. Look at the imagery that David uses to describe God's wrath against sin. He wets his sword. He bends and readies his bow. He prepares his deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. This was the best way David could think of to describe God's heart towards sin, given who he was, this beast of a warrior that went against 
sinful and ungodly nations that God prepared for him to destroy. And so this is the imagery that he uses. Again, this is not the actions of a God who says, you know what, it's cool. I'm not really that bothered. I mean, if some of the you know, if it's some of the bigger sins, I'll probably need to break out some fiery shafts and have a serious chat with you. But otherwise, you and me, were okay. Just keep on sinning, just not so much. That's not God. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is not a God who casts a blind eye towards unrepentant sinners. Psalm 64, verse 5 through 9 says this, speaking about unrepentance. It says, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? Who notices? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep, the psalmist says, but God shoots his arrow at them, and they are wounded suddenly. In other words, they don't even have a chance to stand when God decides to act. They are brought to ruin and with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. God will at some point release his anger towards unrepentant sin and sinners. So the unrepentant person, one of the marks is that they call down God's anger. Number two, they produce a legacy of sin. This is, this is getting really into the depths here. Verse 14 says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Sinners give birth to sin. This is the imagery David uses to show all consuming sin is for an unrepentant person. They conceive evil. They gestate mischief. They give birth to lies. Now, uh, when a couple has a baby, what, what do we know? Well, this is what we know. It comes out formed by the DNA of the parents, right? It's an internal and external representation of mom and pop. I, I'm not saying that's always awesome. It's just the facts, right? I remember when Beth came out, our daughter, and they laid her under that lamp like she was a baby Big Mac. Um, I took one look at her and said, oh, shoot, there I am, Right? That's my face, and I hope it improves because no woman should have that face. <laughs> Man, I'm getting into really dangerous territory right now, aren't I? It improved beautifully, babe. If you're listening to this podcast, you improved beautifully because you took after your mom in the end. Um, but a man or woman, right here is what he's saying, who does not repent, sin by nature becomes the offspring of their life. That's what he's saying. Sin is the offspring of their life. Uh, Don Carson says, nobody drifts towards holiness. Nobody drifts towards holiness. An unrepentant person doesn't become more righteous over the passing of time. Like every time the brakes on your car start making that squeaking sound because you've waited too long to put new brakes on your car, like, like we've done right now, currently, um, they don't just magically begin to get better and transform into new brakes after a while, as much as we would just be pumped if that was the case, right? They don't self-repair. There's no self-repair for our sin. But you know, when you look at that list, when you, when you look at that list, you'd probably never apply it to most of your friends who don't know Jesus. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're not in a relationship with God and you're saying, dude, that's not me. 
All the, some of those things that you've been, you've been wading through, that, that's, that's, not, that's not me, what David is talking about. But what's horrifying is that God is simply describing, David is simply describing people who don't repent. He's saying all this applies to unrepentant people. Now look, are there degrees of wickedness? Yes. And David is speaking to those who are literally trying to violently end his life with no just cause, right? So your neighbor is a sinner, but they're probably not plotting an evil plan to end your life. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. But all those who go through life with unrepentant hearts, never humbling themselves before God, are producing a legacy of sin. And by the way, there are some people, some brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who do have neighbors that are violently plotting against them. So we now live in an era where that's not happening as much, but we have brothers and sisters of which that is happening a lot, so we don't want to be incredibly flippant about that. But eventually, in the end, all sin reaps what it sows. So the marks of an unrepentant person is that they call down God's anger eventually. They produce a legacy of sin. And in verse 15, they reap what they sow. Look what it says. It says, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. What's funny about this for us is that nobody struggles with this conceptually, right? This whole reaping and sowing thing. We are reaping what we sow in probably hundreds of minuscule ways every day, right? So by example, right? Um, man, I cut out dairy uh, eight months ago. Don't hate me. I kind of hate myself for it. But I cut out dairy eight months ago. Periodically, uh, when I want to have a great night, um, I'll grab some ice cream. And my body now uh, responds with, nope. That's how my body responds. In fact, I cramp up so bad now when I eat ice cream that I don't feel guilty about my wife giving birth anymore. That's what it's come to. <laughs> Baby, we're gonna, I'm, that was a joke, and we're going to take care of that later. Um, but I reap what I sow, right? My body is rejecting something that it will not process anymore, right? What about gossip, right? What about gossip? Let's bring this down to something that we're all familiar with because I know ain't all you out there are dairy-free like me right now. What about gossip? Have you ever done this? Have you ever accidentally texted the person you were talking about in a negative way? Because they're, they're, they're like, no, Ronnie, I, when I, only you. Only you have done this, but I've done that. I was talking about somebody. I was saying something bad about somebody, and I texted to the person that I'm saying the bad thing about. You know what happened in the wake of that? Well, I reap what I sowed, right? Loss of trust, damaged a relationship, had to go, had no defense, couldn't say, no, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it that, no, that's how I meant it. That's what it was, right? We reap what we sow. We are familiar with that concept, and so what David here is saying is, man, people that don't repent of their sin, that go through this life um, unwilling to humbly go before the Lord in repentance, man, they are just digging their own hole. That's what he's saying. They're digging their own hole. Now, I want to I hit something because this brings up something in our minds, and it's this. What about those who seem like they prosper, the, the wicked who prosper, those who seem like they do well in their wickedness? It brings up the question, do the wicked always reap what they sow? Well, the wicked ultimately reap what they sow. And in fact, if you want to turn to Psalm 73, let's read a little bit about that. Psalm 73. As you're getting there, I'm going to read a little bit. 
This is the psalmist writing, and he's saying this, hey, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, and loftily they threaten oppression. Then you get down to verse 27 as he goes through this laundry list, and it says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish because you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And then he says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. So what this points to, as you can go back to Psalm 7, is that nobody gets off scot-free. God does not cast a blind eye. Our actions have consequences. So, Let's answer this question. Why must a holy and just God then be a God of wrath? Why must he be a God of wrath? And a couple of easy examples are because we have simply marred and distorted and scraped at the portrait of humanity and righteousness that God developed in in Genesis, that God created in Genesis, right? God creates everything perfect. And what we did, what Adam and Eve did in the garden is they took that perfect portrait that God had painted and at some point, Adam walks by and goes, I think he could use a touch of this. But here's the thing, nobody gets to do that, right? Like if you're an artist and you have, a, have a, an artist loft and you paint a portrait and that, that portrait ends up going into a museum, nobody gets to come up to your portrait and go, I just prefer this shade of blue. And you grab your little brush and you go whoosh. Nobody gets to do that. You're distorting the vision that the artist had and the ownership he has over the portrait he painted. That is what we did in Genesis. We marred the portrait. We have done it willingly. And that's why God is angry at our sin because we are not creators. We are creation, we are created. In in, uh, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 19, the apostle Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We read this earlier, who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then moving up to verse 28, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, to mar his portrait, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Not only that, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Not only that, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, this is a brother that's trying to like cover it all right here for us. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So a holy and righteous God who has a creation that has marred his portrait has a right to be angry and intolerant and intensely hate sin. So then, what can we expect from a God then? who intensely hates sin. Well, we're told two things here in the text. Number one, in verse eight, 
He will judge according to righteousness. You can depend on God to judge according to righteousness. Romans chapter two, verses five through eight says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life, it says. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, listen, there will be wrath and fury. That's Paul. That's New Testament. God will judge according to those who will not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. But the other thing we can expect from a God who intensely hates sin is that he will save the upright in heart. Verse 10, he will save the upright in heart. Matthew Henry, this old school commentary guy, he said, those need not fear man's wrath against them who have God's wrath for them, right? We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Jesus helps us understand God's wrath. Jesus helps us understand God's wrath. We see that although God intensely hates sins, he has an equally intense love for sinners. So how did God's love get applied to sinners who committed cosmic treason against God and marred his portrait? He did something. He acted. He punished his sinless son for sin so that his intense hatred of it might be satisfied against us. So right now, you are faced with a God who is angry at sin every day. But if you repent and turn to Jesus, the anger God has towards sin becomes sin now shouldered by Jesus. But if you reject God's wrath against sin, you are also simultaneously rejecting his love, his mercy, and his grace, which means in the end, you will only receive his wrath. If there's anything, if there's something inside of you that's still in conflict over this, let me end with this question, okay? Because this is something that you're going to want to think about, you're going to want to pray through, you're going to want to meditate on. You want to go online, you maybe want to look up some commentaries to talk about the wrath of God. You want to go to desiringgod.org, you want to go to the Gospel Coalition, you want to look up wrath of God and, and, and get some good words on this if this is something that you are feeling in conflict over. But let me end with this question. What kind of God can be trusted? What kind of God can be trusted? Because this is what we're seeing with David right here. David was calling on the only kind of God that could bring him refuge, safety, and assurance that someday justice and righteousness would prevail. Because here's the thing, a God who does not hate sin does not love sinners because he's content with them dying in their sin. Look, if I don't hate what harms you, my love is harmful to you. If God doesn't hate sin, it means that ultimately he loves the very thing that destroys you. He's unsafe. 
That means he's not a safe God. I've told this story before, but I was, when I learned how to ride mini bikes when I was a kid, my dad was into motorcycles, bought my older brother a mini bike, and he, he taught me how to learn to ride when I was about five or six. I'm riding in circles. At some point, I lock my wrist, and I'm scared, and I just start heading for this brick wall. And at the last minute, because I was scared, you know, you have, you, you, sometimes that happens, my dad pulls me off of the mini bike, and I go tumbling back with him. The bike hits the wall and um, crashes, but I was spared because I was, I was in his arms. The thing and the lesson from that and the, thing that I, the reason why I told that story for the 97th time is that it illustrates something about my dad in that my dad hated that wall. He hated that wall that I was inching towards rather, you know, quickly. He loved me enough at great cost to himself. He pulled his back out. He was, you know, he was, he was laid up for like weeks after that. So here, here's my point with that is that all of you can relate to that because of this, because all of you hate anything that causes harm to your loved ones. You hate those things. When you look at your kid getting involved in something that's unhealthy, it's not because you're just a killjoy, right? You hate that thing that you think could have an adverse effect on your kiddo. You don't want them anywhere near it. It's a good hate. It's a proper hate. It's a hate that displays your love. In fact, it's intrinsic. And how much does that change, right? Remember when you were in high school and there were those kids that had the cool parents? Like the kids with the cool parents that you thought they loved their kids more because they used to help them like plan those parties. Um, and it wasn't until later when you look back and you see how little they actually loved their kids because they didn't protect them from things that were harmful. They didn't hate the things that would show how much they loved their kids. They weren't safe. This is not the kind of love of a God who intensely hates sin that has for us. You can trust God's love because he hates sin. You can look forward to God's justice because he will punish sin. You can receive God's grace because Jesus became sin for you. Now, listen, if God only hated sin, if he was just up there pounding, pounding his fists on his, on his heavenly pulpit like a Baptist preacher, if he only hated sin, we'd be hopeless. But God loves sinners. And his love for sinners is not unconditional, all right? So I'm giving you something else to grapple with. God's love for sinners is not unconditional. If it was unconditional, if God's love for sinners was unconditional, it would mean that he tolerated sin. It's not unconditional. If you've been taught that, I'm sorry, it's wrong. God's love is conditioned, and it's conditioned on whether sinners become repenters and receive God's wrath-bearing son as savior and ruler over their lives. Then, then, instead of fearing or even ignoring God's wrath, we can rejoice now in his righteousness. Because what happens in the end is that repenters become rejoicers. Verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the most high. Repentant people become righteous people when they receive God's wrath against their sin through Jesus who received God's wrath for our sins as he hung on that cross. Justice will come. Wrongs will be righted. Evil will not prevail. Wickedness will not win because death has been defeated. 
And the wrath of God has been satisfied by Jesus. So we can give glory to a God of wrath because he is righteous. And we can cause that same heart broken heart of mercy, love, and grace that a wrathful God had on us and give it to others. First Thessalonians 5, we read this earlier. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're dead or alive, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Do you realize now we can live? Because a God of wrath was also a God of mercy, now we can live with him. We can encourage one another in him. We can be the message of hope to a world that will stand under the judgment of a God who intensely hates sin. But our message is that he's a God that intensely loves sinners because this is what God is like. And this is the good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, this is a lot for us. This is a lot for us, Lord, because our hearts are deceitful and we want to create you. We want to build you into something that is more palatable, that is more comfortable. And that caters to our needs. But God, I pray as we learned about who you are, about your wrath, about your intense hatred of sin, I pray that it would fill us with hope. Because though you intensely hate sin, you intensely love sinners. And you've given us the light of Christ who bore the wrath of our sin on his shoulders so that we wouldn't have to. Because we can't bear it. Our sin has made it that we cannot bear your wrath. We will be demolished. But Christ bore it because he was perfect and he was sinless. And it's his sinlessness and his righteousness that it gets applied to our account if we would just come before you and repent, if we would just turn from our sin and receive the grace and the mercy of Christ's righteousness. God, I want this to be something that we understand so that we can live this, we can be this message. We can be people who have been spared by your wrath. We can be people who wake up new every morning, knowing that we need your mercy, knowing that we need more of your grace upon grace, and then being able to deliver that message of hope to a world that stands in judgment under your wrath. Lord, help us to take this seriously. Help this to sober us as we think right now about coworkers and neighbors and family members, Lord, who are standing under that judgment. God, we know it's you that works in all things. God, we know that we have no power to change anybody's heart. That is the work of the Spirit alone. God, but you have also given us, you have raised us up to be spokespeople, to give testimony to your mercy and grace as people that once stood under your wrath, but now stand under and worship your righteousness. So God, continue to change us and transform us. 
and be a thankful and grateful people in the process, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.